0: This program is brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you would like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to the James Wilson Podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Snedeker. Today, we're pleased to be welcoming back a returning guest of our podcast, Josh Hammer. Josh is the Newsweek opinion editor and a research fellow with the Edmund Burke Foundation. He previously worked at Kirkland and & Ellis and clerked for Judge James C. Ho of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. He holds a BS from Duke University and a JD from the University of Chicago Law School. Josh is on to discuss his new Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy essay, Common Good Originalism, Our Tradition and Our Path Forward. The essay grew out of a piece that he wrote as part of a symposium with Claremont Institute's publication, The American Mind, that I and our founder and director, Hadley Arcus, also contributed to. It's, for a lot of people, a potential exploration of a path forward for conservative jurisprudence, and so we're really pleased to have him with us. Also joining us on the podcast is one of our interns, Tom Sarouf. Tom, why don't
1: you get us started? Josh. Give us a sense of what you understand conservatism to be. Specifically, how does the common good relate to conservatism as a value, right? Because leftism has collectivism as a common good value. But why is that antithetical to your project from the left? And then from the right, what distinguishes you from someone like Professor Adrian Vermeule and his concept of common good constitutionalism? Sure, yeah. So garrett and uh
2: james wilson institute
1: thanks so much for for
2: having me back Uh, i i take great pleasure in in being a return guest of this wonderful program so i'm happy that you're kicking us off on this note because i think defining what conservatism is um or at least kind of as i construe it is definitely kind of a necessary precondition of sorts for understanding why the or understanding why what is currently offered as a purportedly conservative jurisprudence just simply does not rise t- to that occasion. Um, so you know, look, i I um a lot of this is going to be um, kind of beyond the confines of what we can talk about here. I think scholars uh, continue to debate what conservatism is. But, you know, speaking personally, my own view of uh, of what conservatism is is definitely, informed quite heavily by um my my colleague um in many ways kind of uh one of if not my kind of preeminent mentor um which is uh, yoram hazoni who's the president of the edmund burke foundation where i'm a research fellow and um his understanding of what conservatism is which he i think most uh, clearly outlined in a 2017 american affairs journal long-form essay with uh, our other colleague Ophir Haivri, um uh, i think gets closest um to what I have in mind when I talk about conservatism, which is um, a a kind of prudential, pragmatic um, way of viewing the world. It is a world that understands that humans are not uh, automatons. We are not atomized kind of individualists. We are not kind of uh, Ayn Randian widgets. Um, on the other hand, uh, it kind of elevates a lot of the kind of preeminent, uh, you know, Tocquevillian intermediating institutions. That's obviously kind of uh, the family would be the the, the bedrock of that um, church and synagogue. But I guess uh, one way that I kind of have uh, or one way that I view conservatism, I think, is in, in quite direct contrast with some kind of. More fashionable in certain circles, theories of, of of classical liberalism, libertarianism, whatever we might want to call it, is that there is a kind of robust communitarianism there, and n- not in a hands off way. You know, a kind of a hands off communitarianism might be what we might think of as kind of a David Frenchist kind of right liberalism, so to speak. But when I speak of kind of communitarianism here, when I speak of the common good, the national interest, things of that nature, I I I, I view a Fairly hands-on role for the state. A, a, a fairly hands-on role for the for the state for getting in there to um, authoritative, not authoritatively. That's over overstepping here, but to forthrightly and unapologetically promote the common good, of the citizenry. And I don't think this is a particularly radical proposition, actually. In fact, um, you know, one thing that I do in the essay is I kind of root a lot of it in the language of the preamble, where there are you know seven enunciated. Substantive aims for for governance. Um, you know, if, uh, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States of America. It, it's very difficult to read that language and come a, come a, come away with the conclusion. This is referring to kind of a, an individualist, kind of like a, an individual liberty-maximizing telos. That is that, that that is quite clearly not kind of the the telos, the purpose, uh, what Blackstone would call the ratio legis or the reason of the law of of the American regime. Rather, it's rooted um, in kind of the overtly nationalist aim of a more perfect union. Establish justice. Um, You know, justice is obviously kind of right out of uh, as far back as Aristotle and some of the great Greeks. You know, justice, justice, you shall pursue. That's right out of um, uh, the Bible, of course. Provide for the common defense. Well, you know, uh, the general welfare. These are these are the common good. So conservatives, I think, have have gone so far down the rabbit hole of maximizing individual liberty and individual rights um, to the exclusion of kind of more communitarian um, uh, institutional, national, national interests. And, um, that really is kind of the crux of my objection to what has passed as either, you know, positivist or libertarian leaning originalism for much of the past 15, 20 years or so. Um, and I, 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 guess the way that I, um, differentiate myself from, you know, professor Vermeule's come a good constitutionalism by contrast to kind of finish your question there. Um, and Adrian, you know, is a, is a friend. Um, and I, you know, I, I, uh, we we can disagree at the margins, but I but I applaud his efforts to kind of shift the Overton window on, on this discourse here. Um, I, I he is kind of forthrightly Dworkinian. Um, he is unapologetically Dworkinian as far as his methodology is concerned. He basically just wants to kind of take the Dworkinian methodology and apply it to um uh you, you know his own preferred ends. Uh, maybe he would call a conservative. Maybe he would um maybe he would just call it Catholic. Honestly, I mean I'm not really sure. Um, and I have a lot of overlap with those ends, you know, um, solidarity, um, you know, uh, consolidation. Um, I, I, I share a lot of, 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 the, of the preferred ends. I guess the difference for me um, is that I find that a lot of these ends can also be achieved um, in a way that is truer um, to an actual authentic interpretation of the text as that text is channeled through the prism of that telos. Through the prism of the reason of the law um, with the preamble serving a, a real role here. Um, so the methodology is um, definitely a little different. Uh, I, I use the term originalism for for a reason. I, I think that this is an originalist methodology. Um, Adrian would not do so. Um, and, you know, there are some specific cases, that, you know, clauses that we could get into or not get into, up to you guys, that I, I think Adrian and I might arrive at slightly different outcomes due to that um but yeah that's that's the chief difference here is he is uh, he is unapologetically dworkinian whereas i am not
0: one of the notable contributions josh that your piece makes to the contemporary originalist discourse is that you refine what you understand as the permissible uh, contours for what may be done in what you and other originalist scholars have called the construction zone that phrase may come as a bit unusual because the construction zone has not been part of the discourse going back to uh, the, uh, the early days of the modern conservative legal movement. Can you give us an account of what is the construction zone and why it's a legitimate um, tool to use and what may be the utility of rethinking settled doctrines on the construction zone uh, in your understanding of common good originalism?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the term construction zone is definitely like a fairly newfangled thing. Um, if Rennie Barnett didn't create it, he definitely has been kind of very important and prominent in in, in spreading it. Um, I, I just can't quite remember if he literally invented the term, but um, it's very much a thing in kind of quote-unquote new originalist circles, right? I, You know, I've seen um, you know, folks like uh, Mike Rappaport um use it in, in writings at the at the at the lawn Liberty blog. Um, I, I guess one thing that the folks who use the construction zone do, and I don't actually really agree with this, um is they kind of have a pretty firm distinction, um like a dichotomy or juxtaposition, if you will, between interpreta- interpretation and construction. That strikes me as frankly just slightly overintellectualized. <laughs> I think, um a, a lot of folks, if I could just make like a more general kind of observational mm-hmm. criticism i I, th- I think a lot of folks in kind of this area. Tend to over intellectualize this pursuit a little bit. Uh, it, it's entirely possible that I'm among them, but um, a, a lot of this is like, frankly, like less um, terrifyingly or, imp- or intimidatingly difficult than it has to be. So uh, I'm not entirely sure that I buy the interpretation construction distinction that some scholars have made, but the reason that I still use the phrase constru- construction zone, again, whether we're calling this single act, the single unitary act of looking at the document in interpretation or construction. Regardless of what we're calling it, the reason that I feel that, that I like the term construction zone is more kind of the second word in there, zone, because it, it it's kind of getting at a, a a very important point here, which is that a lot of um clauses um in the Constitution um are open to debate. Um and you know, this is a point that I think a lot of originalists, um uh, you know, especially in kind of that uh, purely historicist kind of uh, anti Anton Scalia Bob Bork fashion have been kind of adamant about over the decades is that this really is just a historical inquiry that is predicated upon the fact that a historicist approach can yield, you know, one, quote, unquote, true, one, quote, unquote, correct answer. But the very notion of the word zone in the phrase construction zone implies that it's just not necessarily always the case. And it's an important point to make, um, and kind of, you know, later um, in the essay, I talk about how, you know, like my um, my reading of, of Edmund Burke and the Great Common Lawyers kind of, I think, imbues the way I approach all this with a certain level of epistemological humility that would militate against kind of that, like, um, tr- you know, Scalia-Bork uh, absolute uh, assurance that there's only one answer. So we should, I, th- I think we should basically— um, be candid uh, and forthright. That it, you know, it's, it, it's a feature, not a bug, of of this um, of this constitutional edifice, this beautiful structure. That a lot of these clauses are phrased with varying degrees of uh, of generality, varying degrees of specificity. Um, and obviously, I, I'm speaking in broad terms here. A lot of clauses are incredibly precise. I mean, you know, the Seventh Amendment speaks, of course, of a minimum dollar amount uh, in controversy for suits at common law. There's the minimum age to run for president. There's things of that nature, right? So. Uh, um you know there's no kind of uh, uh, there's little room for common gooding so to speak those provisions but um where our phrase is um is, is is more elastic um you know then the question becomes what to do um, and this is this is where we're, this, is, this is where we're operating in in the in the construction zone here so you know a lot of um our more kind of um libertarian leaning friends professor barnett i you know i think has kind of shifted his position a bit over the past few years but certainly when he first wrote his um the Presumption of Liberty book 15 years ago or so, he, you know, he's. And again, I I understand that Randy has changed a, a little bit, but at least when he wrote that book, you know, his stance was was more or less that when we're in this construction zone, we all we ought to err uh, on the side of kind of Lockean uh, natural rights liberty uh, anchored in kind of the Declaration above all else. Um, uh, you know, for Randy in particular, that might lead to some conclusions that I that I found a little. Um, I, I don't absurd is a slightly too strong word, but I strongly disagreed with. You know, for example, he kind of praised the Lawrence versus Texas decision. I think he praised um, Anthony Kennedy's um, libertarianism or something along those lines. But um, I, I guess my argument um, is basically trying to do something very similar to that kind of presumption of liberty argument when you're in this kind of construction zone. But I would err on the side of. Substantive conservatism, which I root in the Telos of the Regime, um, aka the preamble, is, is really so. It's, it's a very similar methodological framework. Um, it's just kind of getting at slightly different substantive values um, on top of this kind of Burkean epistemological humility and this candid willingness to assert that a lot of these clauses are indeed open to multiple legitimate possible
1: interpretations. Uh, You know, you give a very clear explanation of the different branches of originalism. So the progressive originalists who have this substantive core of Dworkinian living constitutionalism. And then there's also the libertarian originalists, Anthony Kennedy, as you've just alluded to. And they're advocating classical liberalism. That's the substantive end or telos of the American regime. And that's what they pursue. But then you contrast these two branches... With the conservative originalists, who you say offers, and I'm quoting, the thinnest gruel of rote proceduralist positivism, uh, which they call textualism. You argue that this branch has no substantive agenda behind it besides merely holding fast to the process of looking at the text and then calling that a victory of judicial restraint. Uh, but I When I was reading that, I kind of wanted to push back and ask, you know, isn't there an implied premise uh, in the ideas of, say, you know, Justice Scalia or Judge Bork, uh, for example, something like this implied premise of, you know, it would be morally wrong or it would be constitutionally illegitimate or unjust for the judiciary to take on the role of the legislature, something like that. So I guess I would ask, you know, isn't their substantive core then actually motivated by a desire to uphold the separation of powers, and if that's motivating them, where do you see them going wrong?
2: Yes, I mean this is a this, this is a great question, Um and you know to an extent this is you know very similar, of course, to the decades long kind of dueling debates between Antonin Scalia and, and and Harry Jaffa. You know there was more specifically about the role of the Declaration of Independence, but. Certainly, a lot of overlap um, with my criticism of of kind of the you know what I would call the rote positivist, and, I, and I'm happy that you mentioned the the thin gruel line because I w- I was particularly happy with that one if I <laughs> if I don't say so myself. Um, so look, I guess my basic claim here, um, and you know it's a very similar claim that uh, you know our our good friend Jerry Bradley makes in his new Louisiana Law Review article, Moral Truth and Constitutional Conservatism. Um, my basic claim here. Is that uh, the act of purporting to um, look at a document that uh, can be done on a pure historicist, pure historical inquiry? You know, along the lines of what our friend, kind of, Justice. Tom Lee of the Utah Supreme Court calls kind of corpus linguistics, um, which, I'm, which I haven't read about um, since I was in law school. But if I understand it correctly, it's kind of a, you know, it's more or less kind of an algorithm that looks at uh, dictionaries from a certain time of legal provision and kind of spits out uh, what is the the likeliest answer based on that. I, I My objection to to all that, which, you know, is kind of similar, I think, to, um, you know, Professor Jerry Bradley's objection and a lot of folks who kind of float in, in, our, in our circles, um, is that... Well, it's twofold. One is that um i I, I legitimately do not believe that this is uh, the actual inquiry that the founders actually were calling for. Um, so if you want to like actually take them at their own word, um you know, if you want to look, um, you know, I what folks like Alexander Hamilton would refer to as those axioms, as those anchoring truths, as those things that we took for granted that we kind of assumed to be true before we even got to the act of trying to figure out what words on a page mean. So from that perspective, I kind of just disagree, kind of like a, just a fundamental level. And then the other thing that I find just particularly troubling about this this viewpoint here, it's I think it's a bit of a lie against human nature, actually. Um, I think it's deceiving human nature to pretend like judges can like um, you know truly leave their their values at the door, so to speak. Um, this notion that um, that that a judge um, can just completely forsake um, any and all priors, can completely forsake any and all sense of morality, virtue, or anything like that, and engage in a straight historical inquiry and get you the one true and correct answer, um, uh, that is bordering on impossible, if not outright impossible. Perhaps there are some like superhuman-type Article Three or state court judges who are truly capable of engaging in, in such a task. Um, but not, again, not only is that task Kind of just contrary to the basic, uh, I would say both biblical and Aristotelian view of man as you know as like an inherently moral creature with moral inclinations who strives to engage in moral reasoning. So not only does is it contrary to kind of like a philosophical understanding of man and what our purpose in this world is, but it's also just it's also just as a pr- practical matter, it's asking something that is basically impossible to do. You know, I, I used to work for Ben Shapiro at um the Daily Wire. And something that Ben would um, always say is that, you know, he would basically say that it's, you know, it's crazy for, you know, CNN, MSNBC, the New York Times, et cetera, to pretend to be neutral because, you know, these journalists are, uh, they might be thinking that they're quote unquote just reporting the quote unquote straight news. But they're not. Um, they have their own biases and their own agendas, and they should be open and forthright about that. So I guess the same way that I think it, it, it's extremely difficult, if not impossible, for you know um, uh, an MSNBC reporter to just report the straight news on an issue of kind of uh, you know charged moral substance, so too is it next to impossible for a judge to do the same in a slightly different context.
0: Josh, what would you have originalist judges that we have on the bench right now do differently uh, than what they're doing already?
2: So, you know, it, it's it, it's a great question, Garrett. Um, and I I hope at some point, you know, if this article continues to kind of make inroads, I would love to obviously, you know, uh, as, as, as both a selfish matter, and um a non-selfish uh you know lowercase all republican manner would love to see uh, and you know a citation and someone try to like work through the weeds of how this would play mm. out um that would be pretty cool right so i i i guess um when i kind of first conceived of this project um and you know my first common good originalism essay which was part of an american mind symposium uh, over a year ago responding to professor Vermeule's first Common good constitutionalism essay uh, you know, Garrett, if I recall, you you participated in that symposium as well, right. um, as did Hadley. Um, so when I first kind of thought of this, um, it's changed a little bit since then. But all along, what I've thought of is I'm trying to use kind of the newer original as jargon. I'm trying to use the methodology, and I'm trying to use the framework in such in such a way that, from my perspective, will kind of seamlessly interact with articles like what I mentioned earlier like Jerry Bradley's fantastic new article moral truth and constitutional conservatism that will that will kind of methodologically provide the framework by which a conscientious uh, judge can then get in there so to speak and get in the weeds and actually candidly and forthrightly discuss the sort of moral truth considerations that Professor Bradley is discussing so you know for example here um I provide a handful of examples in the essay um, but just to take like one example that uh, you know has really been in the news quite recently, of course, um, which is the abortion debate, and you know that kind of goes back. Well, it goes back a long time, obviously, but you know most recently it was kind of brought back to the forefront of the discussion by Professor Finnis's um, you know First Things uh, magazine essay heard around the world. Um, uh, entitled "Abortion is Unconstitutional." It kind of builds off of a lot of work that our you know our friend Josh Craddock has done. As far as Fourteenth Amendment equal protection clause interpretation is concerned, so here is kind of how common good originalism would directly interact with like Professor Bradley's article in that specific constitutional context. I think this is about as, about as good an example as I can think of. So if we're talking about um, abortion, Roe versus Wade, um, and the Fourteenth and, and, and Amendment here, you know the traditional kind of Scalia Bork view on this is that you know the Constitution is silent. Constitution is not a moral document, Um, it says nothing about abortion, therefore it's a state's issue, 10th Amendment, et cetera, right? Pretty straightforward analysis. Professor Finnis, Josh Craddock, they get in there and say, well, no. um, In Section 1, the 14th Amendment, and uh, really the Equal Protection Clause in particular, when they refer to persons, it was well understood that this would have protected unborn persons as well. So coming good originalism, um, the two-step process here, the first step is kind of, again, that kind of Berkey and epistemological humility. So you look at this and you say, okay, these are two viable um, competing schools of, um, of, of originalism or uh, compete, compete, two viable um, applications of originalism, I should say, um, on kind of just a basic, just historical, historicist inquiry. So at that point, once you're in this construction zone, what do you do? Well, I say that you err on the side of the Telos of the American regime as rooted um in in, in provisions such as the preamble with its you know, calls to establish justice, promote the general welfare. Um, and that would kind of allow for um, you know to engage in kind of Jerry Bradley have the i think, esque reasoning, where you can then actually directly discuss what abortion is you know the ex- the exact same way that Abraham Lincoln unapologetically discussed what slavery is you know in his Peoria address of course where he famously talked about um you know how every how everything changes if the negro um his words of course at that time not mine in the year 2021 but if the negro is a man how how everything fundamentally changes in our view of of slavery and equal protection um, and, you know, common good originalism in this context would then allow the judge to engage forthrightly in an analysis of what the unborn child is, who the unborn child is, and what rights the unborn child entails. And that would imply ultimately putting a thumb on the scale in this particular case, um, you know, of the John Finnis interpretation over the Scalia-Bork approach. Um, so uh, hopefully, that made, ho- hopefully that made sense to the listeners.
1: Returning to the subject of epistemological humility, an interpretation you've said already that it's about not pretending that there is only one objective and true original meaning and saying, well, no, there are a couple of reasonable interpretations at play here, but of course all within an originalist framework. But looking more generally, it seems still that with common good originalism, you're asking the judges to do a lot more I think, uh, than they have been doing already. And I think Ed Whalen, too, has called this type of approach uh, results-oriented or a consequentialist jurisprudence. So I guess the question I'd put to you is, isn't there more humility uh, in the mainline originalist jurisprudence of someone like, say, Justice Scalia, who's often remarked that you know being a judge didn't give him any more insight uh, into what's right and wrong than anyone else? So what's your response to an argument like that?
2: Yeah, so this is this is this is a great question. Obviously, um, I mean, I, I I think both arguments are plausible. One could plausibly argue that epistemological humility would militate against um, engaging in substantive moral reasoning. I think one could just as easily argue that epistemological humility, though, would militate against. The sort of kind of histor, I, you know, I, I would call it historicist triumphalism. Um, how's that for a turn of phrase? Uh, <laughs> the, the historicist triumphalism of kind of this corpus linguistics project um, that we can, uh, that we can, um, you know, if anything, it is kind of uh, hubristic. It is, it, it is deeply hubristic. Um, I, I, and 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 con- and conceited, I think, to think that humans can do what I was just talking about, to kind of fully separate their their moral principles at at the at the door. Um, I think kind of the humbler approach is to kind of candidly concede that this is a lie. You know, again, that is you know both the Bible and the Greeks taught us um, that this is not who we are. That we are human beings who have moral yearnings and have to and kind of engage as moral reasoning as kind of a bedrock function of our being human in, in the first instance. Um, so I, I I I kind of. So a, a, an analogous topic, actually, where I think this kind of cuts both ways. I was thinking about this recently um, in the context of, of, of stare decisis, and you know, my longstanding view on stare decisis—well, uh, uh, let's stick to constitutional interpretation. Um, but my 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 view of stare decisis and constitutional interpretation is very similar to Justice Thomas's view, um, you know, as he cl- most clearly expressed in the, his Gamble versus the United States concurrence in 2019. And you know, I think I think I think a lot of people, so- certainly some of my critics, would kind of look at that and say, well, how can you reconcile these two things? Well, it's actually interesting. Um, I published that essay in National Affairs last fall, and the very next issue of National Affairs, my my you know, my friend Jeremy Rosansky had another issue on Decisis, Isis, um, which was basically a, a, trying to t- tease out Burke's views on this. Um, and you know, Burke himself, obviously. Uh, he was a lawyer by training, but you know we think of him more for kind of statesmanship and political philosophy than for his approach to jurisprudential and legal questions. But the extent to which he kind of weighed in on 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 this subject, he basically said that kind of a co- ad hoc kind of common law rulings. Um, are actually only evidence of the correct law, or only evidence of the correct answer. Um, and you know, Jeremy's essay kind of really gets in there a little bit more than I'm descri- describing. But the the upshot here is that um, counterintuitively, Burke's views on stare decisis appear to be a lot closer to Justice Thomas's views um, than you know, like Justice Breyer or Justice Kagan's views, for instance, or something of of, of that nature. Um, so I think epistemological humility can have some counterintuitive applications. Um, is is what I'm getting at here um but you know i mean this is a good question and um you know this is obviously a very recurring line of criticism not just towards me but um you know again towards harry jaffa back when he was alive and back towards kind of every back towards anyone who frankly would imbue um some sort of kind of moral substance into constitutional interpretation as an exercise ultimately what really needs to happen um and garrett i think we talked about this a little bit with jesse merriam on our last podcast here together Mm -hmm. was Ultimately, what has to happen is we need to just totally reform legal education. This is where it really starts here Um, because, yeah, it's very difficult, I think, to kind of um, expect judges to do the sort of thing that I'm calling for them to do, you know, absence some sort of like formal training in that. So, you know, I think… 1L curricula have to be like, you know, it, it, that has to be like drastically redone as but one example to kind of directly get in there, kind of um, uh, the Bible, frankly, um, and then kind of just some kind of traditional kind of natural law reasoning as well. But um, we're obviously far from that. Um, but, you know, hopefully through podcasts like this and conversations like this, we can slowly move the needle back towards kind of a, a fuller, um, more kind of uh, uh, a, a legal education more oriented to producing true statesmen, I might say.
0: Yeah, Josh, if I may, two two quick points that build off of what you just said. The first is that I think the notable difference that you would have with many folks in the conservative legal movement is that you are an unabashed departmentalist, meaning that you don't want conservative judges having necessarily the final word on these constitutional issues. And by conservative judges, I would mean the lower courts and then the ostensible uh, 6-3 Republican-appointed majority on the Supreme Court having the final word. Rather, you would want their uh, opinions to be seen as part of an ongoing conversation between the branches on the constitutionality of uh, certain disputes. Uh, And at the end of the day, uh, a more healthy constitutional order would result um, rather than having uh, the court be treated as a final arbiter. Uh, You and I have talked about that before. Um, But the other thing, just to get back to epistemological humility, that I think makes for a much deeper um, point that the judges who've been um, schooled in a certain approach uh, that looks at originalism as much more of a technocratic um, pursuit is how is one to expect a judge that was nominated, confirmed, and has been practicing for so many years, um, how is one to assume that that judge, you know, need feel the kind of uh, awakening uh, to what this moment requires of him or her, um, that 30 plus years of jurisprudence, uh, you know, need, need, need to be kind of looked at in the context of when it developed, but not as based on some kind of you know, true interpretive methodology. I see I see the real question of um, trying to, you know, get uh, old dogs to perform new tricks as being the strongest barrier to, you know, call it natural law jurisprudence um, or um, common good originalism. Uh, I see that as the strongest barrier to um, breaking in. Now, of course, we've had some judges who have been, you know, much better than others, but uh, I still see, you know, the same kind of, um, you know, hesitancy to he- to adopt, you know, an uh, an interpretive methodology that for them, you know, seems uh to run against, you know, so many years of practice as as being um uh, the hardest uh nut to crack, but um maybe 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 you think uh these these old dogs if they see some of their fellow judges leading the way, they might they might be more open to follow.
2: So this is indeed one of the most difficult parts of this entire project, um, and to an extent, you know, w- when I write articles like this, you know, Harvard JLPP article, my my main audience is is uh, I I definitely am speaking to some extent to current judges. Um, by the way, also to current um, you know senators, representatives, et cetera. Um, you know, as a good departmentalist. Uh, to kind of pick off where you were talking about, it, you know, I firmly believe that constitutional interpretation is an act for all the branches. Um, right. So uh, um, I, I definitely also want to appeal to folks um, in Article 2 and Article 1, not just in Article 3. But sticking, you know, the purposes of of, uh, of our conversation here to Article 3, um, I, 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 to an extent, I am writing, I think, more for current law students and for young lawyers, for young prospective judges. Than for those who have been on the bench for decades. Um, and, and for those for those judges who I am writing for, it's mostly those who um, are you know a little younger, who um, uh, are, are, are I, I don't want to say more with the times. That's like a little uh, uh, condescending, but um, are uh, you know to kind of borrow some some of the preferred terms of our dear friends at the Claremont Institute are. You know, it's slightly more red-pilled, I guess you might say, as to, like, what is actually going on in the U.S. as far as, far as you know, what, what our Claremont friends would kind of call what it, what increasingly appears to be kind of the, the later stages of our republic. And our and and, and, our, and kind of the flip side of that kind of, like, situational awareness as to how far off the rails um, the Constitution has been, you know, since, like, at least the Woodrow Wilson presidency over 100 years ago is just kind of—and this is a point that I pressed— um, Uh, in both of my debates with Ed Whelan, both our in-person Heritage Foundation debate and then kind of our Federal Society Zoom debate, um, I I kind of, and I I, I also do this, you know, again, in the intro to the Harvard GLPP article because it's an important point to press, is just to try to kind of lay it out for people how many failures um, uh, the conservative legal movement uh, and, and the Republican Party, just quite candidly, have produced. I mean, it's a very, very long and and sad list. And like, there obviously are some outstanding judges, justices who have come out of that. Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito at the Supreme Court level. Um, you know, I, I was privileged to clerk for uh, Judge uh, Jim, uh, excuse me, <laughs> Judge James C. Ho of the Fifth Circuit, who of of course is um is, was one of many fabulous um, Trump-nominated lower court judges. So, um, obviously there have been any number of of, of successes. But look, I mean, it's let's just take this past term for for example, Garrett. I mean, we could you know any number of of disappointments here i mean the failure to grant cert in the arlene Fla- arlene flowers case i mean where where for the love of god uh actually in this case quite literally where for the love of god um where were justices uh brett Kavanaugh, and amy coney barrett um and you know i i, I recently published uh, my good friend josh blackman had a kind of a long form op-ed more of a short essay honestly in newsweek And uh, Josh was talking about um, how you don't have to look very far. You you can just read what they're writing to see that Justice Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch are increasingly just kind of Um, uh, just throwing out there that Barrett and Kavanaugh, you know, lack of the fortitude. um, It's hard charging stuff. So you really don't have to look very far to kind of um, realize um, how flawed the current status quo is. Um, You don't need a Bostock moment every single day. Bostock should have been illuminating in and of itself, obviously. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's just so many data points at this point to just kind of evince to you know, intellectually curious judges, how far off this is. But having said all that, um, yeah, to the extent that I'm specifically speaking to sitting judges, I'm definitely speaking more to kind of younger judges who, you know, probably follow like the Twitter sphere and like the public discourse a little more and are just kind of attuned to um just the immense, intense frustration that is out there as far as a kind of our sclerotic, outmoded. Uh, originalist orthodoxies that increasingly just do not appear to be delivering returns for substantive conservatism.
0: Well, Josh, let's get down to cases then. So for the benefit of our listeners, how would a common good originalist approach in a case uh, about like First Amendment protections for free expression uh, of animal crush videos uh, be handled? You know, this is, of course, uh, a, a determination that the Supreme Court made over a decade ago. But how How would a common good originalist approach that case differently?
2: Yeah, so the animal Crush video it, it it came out within a year or two of the Snyder versus Phelps case, if I recall, right? Um nice. it was right, it, it was right around the same time. Um, very similar cases um, as far as jurisprudence, um not necessarily the underlying facts, of course, here. Um, so uh, you know for the for the benefit of the listeners, um, so there's a so-called animal Crush video. Um, which is just genuinely horrifying stuff, um, right? I mean, um, we're we're talking here uh, about these just sick, twisted, deranged individuals that are taking videos of themselves uh, killing, um, maiming, or killing innocent animals uh, and posting that online for God knows what reason. Um, Snyder versus Phelps um, was the case uh, where uh, Phelps, you know, who is uh, has uh, died since then, he was the founder of the Westboro Baptist Church and we would spew these horrific epithets from a public sidewalk at military funerals. So that you know the question in both cases is effectively, um, is there a First Amendment free speech right to do this? Um, Justice Alito um, basically says in both cases that no, you don't. Um, I think that is uh, definitely the common good originalist approach here. Um, And you don't have to go back really um, that far. I mean, a lot of these kind of free speech clause issues were debated heavily in the early republic. And, you know, um, the Hamiltonian wing, um, you know, the Federalist Party, um, you know, the Alien and Sedition Acts, obviously, uh, I think history has not been kind to them, to put it mildly. Um, But a lot of this kind of... um, you know slightly less permissive slightly less maximalist view of free speech was um uh, I, I i it was somewhere between popular to predominant among the founding generation and more generally it's really kind of a historical revisionist enterprise over the past you know few decades where i think some jurists have kind of just looked at our free speech and you know the Citizens United case of 2010 is interesting. Um, I I I think the outcome is almost assuredly correct, um, but some of the language in there, you know, Anthony Kennedy has a, has a line in that majority opinion where he talks about how, you know, in our in our in our form of governance, the answer to uh, to bad speech is more speech. It's kind of like the flip side of the coin of you know. Yeah, you know, a line that Voltaire may or may not have said. I, I don't know if it's uh, apocryphal or not. About how you know, I will. I may not agree with what you say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. Um, and I think a lot of like modern right-leaning legal thinkers think that this sort of like truly pluralistic, amoral approach to speech is kind of our true um, inheritance. And I, I, you know, Justice Alito doesn't necessarily say this in, in, in either the Crush video case or the Snyder versus Phillips case, but he, he he's really getting awfully close to saying it, which is basically saying no, that is not our inheritance. That is actually not what the conservative um, tradition, what our early era constitutional tradition was with respect to speech. Um, that it is perfectly um, uh, not uh, that judges are not only perfectly uh, capable and adequate of actually engaging in substantive moral reasoning about like the worth of various forms of truly um, not just meaningless speech, but speech that um, I, I would say objectively, uh, and, and not even arguably, objectively. Um is detrimental to the polity, is detrimental to um, you know the the telos and the preamble is detrimental to the common good, to the general welfare, et cetera. Things like these horrific animal crush videos, like whatever the hell, whatever the heck, uh, you know Mr. Phelps was saying from the sidewalk. Um, uh, that these sort of things just are, are are so outrageous and so anathema to our tradition and our way of life. they do not merit the constitutional protections. Um, that you know uh, the Anthony Kennedy logic in Citizens United um, might necessarily provide for. So, so I, I think that's exactly right. Um, I, I I think um, you know a slightly um, more moralistic, more um, uh, I guess restrictive view um, of, of speech in general is um, is not merely consonant with common good originalism. I think it's kind of a a, a direct
1: application of it, and probably one probably one of my favorite applications of it actually. You know, Josh, you use some of these words like telos and these kind of philosophical terms. Something that I think gets lost a lot of times in history classes on the American founding is the philosophical wisdom that the founders had. They kind of took for granted. They knew this really so well. Um, So, you know, in a history class, you might get a teacher. They'll teach how they structured the government and some of the various compromises that the founders made. And if you're lucky or if the teacher's good, you might get to some or a little bit of the underlying logic of the government. But what's really missing is a coherent account of philosophy. Part of that might be that history teachers or Amer- some American classicists are ill-equipped to have that type of discussion with students and with young people. But something that comes across in your article and you spend quite a bit of time on is that both the founders had coherent political philosophies and they had really a philosophy of the person um, on which the government is founded and that how that provides a certain underlying logic. So, you, for instance, you know, you describe James Madison as the moderate uh, in the Committee on Style. Um, then you have Jefferson, who's the kind of the rationalist. Uh, Alexander Hamilton is a student sort of of Edmund Burke, uh, and he's a strong federalist. But I think, you know, it gets to a question of competing philosophies amongst our founding fathers and some of the debates that they were having and that's regarding epistemology uh, and even you know metaphysical disagreements between the founders and i think these questions in large part undergird the reasons that our government was created the way that it was Uh, so can you flesh out for us some of these debates and then also if you would you know what is the importance of these disagreements among the founders particularly for legal conservatives
2: yeah, for sure. So, um I'm actually really happy you brought this up because it actually kind of undergirds my entire point about epistemological humility, by the way. Um, uh, in, in fact, part of my criticism of kind of the historicist triumphalist, part of my criticism of kind of the corpus linguistics project project, excuse me, is that it doesn't take um it doesn't take much to it doesn't take much effort to kind of go back in. And review and see that the founders like disagreed among themselves, and they did so vociferously. I mean, um, you know, as a com law student in law school, right, you learn about the Pacificus Helvidius debates between um, ha- Hamilton and Madison, whether it was respect to kind of Article One, Section Eight, enumerated powers, whether it was respect to implied Article Two, executive powers, um, in which Hamilton was obviously the more permissive of of those two dueling um, schools of thought um they really disagreed a lot i mean i mean for goodness sake i mean um you know as someone who works uh in media i mean if you go back and look at like the the partisan newspaper mudslinging from the election of 1800 um you know part of it was just purely ad hominem of course which i'm not going to defend that's not a good thing but um part of it was just like profoundly different views um as to uh what constituted the good life and how the good life manifests itself both as a political and a legal matter um so, you know, um, part of the problem I think of kind of uh, originalism Inc. So to speak, um, over the past three to four decades, definitely has been kind of over embellishing the extents to which the capital F founders, you know, agreed on on all these things. It's, it's just not true. Um, now, there are any number I think of of constructions from modern times that we've seen applied that it's true, like the like like the founders. All but a Shirley would have unanimously, um, you know, uh, been aghast at that. You know, I'm thinking um, obviously about cases such as, you know, Lawrence versus Texas or Obergefell versus Hodges, um, and then or even kind of just non-morally charged cases, um, you know, like um, Wickard versus Filburn, which you know obviously was kind of a World War II era post-Caroline Products footnote for case in a totally different court. But I think there too, much like in Lawrence or Obergefell it wouldn't be wrong to say that like the Capital F founders would have um, uh, been uh, concerned at minimum or just opposed at maximum to that extraordinarily expansive um, construction of the Commerce Clause. So um, I, I don't want to embellish the point I'm making here. There are any number of kind of modern um, constitutional clauses that have been interpreted or constructed in such a way that all the founders would um, find it appalling, but they really did kind of approach his entire edifice quite differently. Um, and uh, Thomas Jefferson, um, I think, was kind of uh, the predecessor of kind of what we would call the strict constructionist school of thought, where you know Thomas Jefferson was kind of a true Enlightenment classical liberal, where he basically viewed um, you know th- the sole purpose of government um, as securing kind of a maximal conception of of, of negative liberty, um, which meant necessarily from his perspective strictly construing constitutional provisions as much as possible. Um, this, this kind of leads to that famous Necessary and Proper Clause um, disagreement that um, he had, and I guess, uh, well, Madison later kind of flip-flopping this later in life, but that Jefferson famously had with with Hamilton's school of thought on the Necessary and Proper Clause, um, which you know Hadley Argus has talked about uh, at great length elsewhere, and how it's basically just kind of a recitation of kind of a, a of a straightforward natural law provision, actually, is really what the Necessary and Proper Clause is. Um, And, you know, obviously, McCullough versus Maryland ultimately settled that um, dispute posthumously uh, for Hamilton, tragically, uh, but it settled it in his favor. But Jefferson was kind of your quintessential, like, the Enlightenment rationalist, strict constructionist. Um, I think in many ways he is kind of a predecessor as well to kind of an overly literal um, school positivist thought. Uh, We we might say— uh, I'm not gonna say that Jefferson would have necessarily like morally approved or anything of, of Neil Gorsuch's opinion in the Bostock case, but that school of kind of hyper literalist positivist textualism, we might call that Jeffersonian in nature. Um, Hamilton and you know the Federalist Party, the, the, you know the, the men who drafted the preamble and who uh, really kind of um, dominated large swaths of the first you know two decades of the of the American Republic, took a, took a different approach. Um, they did not necessarily interpret every clause as kind of strictly or narrowly as possible. They had kind of other substantive aims in addition to kind of individual liberty. Liberty was obviously important for them, as it was for basically all the founders. But they had other aims competing aims as well. And uh, you know by consequence, they did they didn't necessarily always favor interpreting the Constitution as a kind of an overly constricted straitjacket. Um rather, it would it, it would at times be a little more, flexible and pliable to allow actors to um, the room necessary to pursue the common good, uh, to pursue the national interest. Um, And, you know, the necessary and proper clause debate with respect to the Bank of the United States, which is one of the great debates of the era, is kind of a good example of that, I think. So um, uh, it's very much kind of a, um, you know, look, a lot of people refer to Hamilton as a a nationalist. I I think that's basically right. Uh, I mean, he obviously— you know, in his 1791 opinion on man or his report on manufacturers, he obviously supports kind of a fairly robust uh, industrial policy. Uh, you know, the likes of uh, Oren Cass I think take a lot of kind of um, uh, they borrow a lot from him as as far as intellectual history is concerned um but he his nationalism really kind of imbued his jurisprudence as well i think um so folks like hamilton and john jay had they they simply had other aims in mind when they looked at a at, at a constitution to be interpreted they weren't trying to do what jefferson was doing and just you know narrow it as much as possible so as to maximize the sole aim of individual liberty they just had other competing aims and i think kind of their um you know their kind of national statesmanship played a big role in that constitutional interpretive exercise
0: so, Josh, in in closing, and this this has been a real treat. Uh, in closing, the prudence element of of jurisprudence has been de-emphasized, in your view,
2: right? The prudence element, uh, I, I I would I would agree with that for sure. Yes. Okay.
0: I guess the the most difficult thing to forecast then is you know, ten years, fifteen years from now, we have potentially no change in the. Conservative, you know, legal movements uh, focus. It becomes, at least to me, a question of: To what then are we seeking to conserve? Um, if 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 you know if the trends that are apparent now um, continue to progress, are we really going to have any kind of? Uh, are we going to really have any kind of movement left to uh, preserve? That's I think one of the hardest questions to. To put forth to, you know, jurists that um, I think would rather put their hands up rather than uh, do the very hard work of weighing and balancing uh, some of these concerns that they might think um, either ask them to go beyond their normal toolkit or um, ask them to uh, you know engage in the type of uh, you know reasoning that uh, they might not be prepared for. But you know, my my biggest uh, my biggest fear is that. While we have all the brain power in the world, um, it ain't worth um, a hill of beans unless there's some courage uh, to act. And so, I wonder if your concern is the same as mine, uh, which is that I think we've put onto the bench some wonderful uh, people uh, who are who are humble, uh, and that's a that's you know, in in normal times uh, a quality that we would seek out. Um, but I think that we may have some moments in the years ahead in which as Judge Janice Rogers Brown said at a 2014 Heritage Foundation uh, Joseph Story lecture that um, uh, limited government should mean limited judging uh, but sometimes judges need to intervene uh, for the sake of uh, liberty and um, where are they going to go for those sources? Uh, Athens and Jerusalem, I wonder if our judges are prepared uh, to tap into Athens and Jerusalem. My fear is that many of them don't want to.
2: I certainly share your fear. Um, And, you know, it's true. I mean, we are, again, over a century now into the Woodrow Wilson presidency and kind of, uh, you know, the beginning of transformative capital P progressivism. We are so, so, so far removed um, from what has to Happen that maybe the term conservative uh, increasingly doesn't even apply anymore. Actually, um, you know, and uh, I, I, you know, some of our friends, especially, um, you know, uh, kind of like M- Matt Peterson and some of our Claremont-oriented uh, friends, like to use the the rhetoric of a of a new founding, kind of a a, a refounding of America rather than rather than conservatism. Um, I, I don't know, I don't necessarily disagree with that to an extent. That's kind of just a semantic dispute, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, it, it kind of reminds me again of the Star Decisis debate, actually. Um, you know, I mean, it kind of, you know, when Chief Justice Roberts had that um, frankly ridiculous um, concurrence in um, uh, the Louisiana abortion case 2020, explaining why Star Decisis compelled him to, you know, uh, uh, apply a four year old precedent, I mean, you know, for goodness sake, um, if that rigid wooden view of of conserving what has just happened is conservatism, then I certainly want no part of it. Um, you know, the good news is in that in, in that specific instance, the good news is, as I, as I said earlier, that uh, Burke's views himself on Stardis Isis are actually a little counterintuitive than we might expect. And I really I really would encourage listeners to check out my good friend Jeremy Rozansky's, uh Winter National Affairs article from this year uh, on Burke's views on Stardis Isis. It was, it was really fabulous. But it kind of gets back to your question, Garrett. Um, there's only so much that folks like us who are writing who are um speaking it, there's only so much that we can do. Ultimately of course um the burden does fall um on those who uh, wield the actual levers of power, you know, in this case uh the Article 3 power. Um to do so. And um I I it really is difficult to be optimistic. Now I can I I, I can leave on a somewhat cheery note here. Um it would be a bad idea for me to uh, to, to name names, but um, you know, just by by dint of the fact that I you know I did formerly clerk um, on a uh, federal court of appeals, and then I do lots of kind of federal society speaking, and then I kind of just over the years have um, had, had the privilege to meet a a, a good number of federal judges. Um, I can tell you in the audience beyond a shadow of a doubt. Um, that I have found some folks receptive to, to my arguments. Um, uh, some folks, some so, some folks even even more than receptive, um, who um, actually I, I I think at some point want to try to find a time to uh, to implement it, um, which is. Um, deeply uh exciting obviously um so you know look i um just speaking personally here you know i mean um i had you know any number of kind of federal society talks on this this past year i I would hope that there will be a lot more this year now that now that the harvard glpp articles is finally out um you know obviously there's um this wonderful new anchoring truths um, uh, website that James Wilson suit has founded. and I, I hope to use that to kind of um, get the word out on some of this as well. So you know I, I'm trying to do what I can, but um, I, I, I am I, I really am happy with, with some of the conversations that I've had with with some judges. I um, obviously cannot disc- disclose who that is, but um, some of those conversations have made me um, grinning ear to ear happy I, w- I would say. so happy happy to leave it on that uh, very uh, uh, uplifting note actually.
0: Well, we we encourage our readers to please check out Josh's uh, new Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy uh, law review piece on common good originalism. We'll make sure that we link to it um, on uh, Anchory Truths, our our new website, as as well as um, on social media so you can share it with all your friends and colleagues. Uh, Josh Hammer, um, great to have you with us again. And um, thank you
2: for being with us. Anytime, Garrett. Thanks for having me again.
0: This program has been brought to you by the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights in the American Founding. If you'd like to learn more about the James Wilson Institute, please visit jameswilsoninstitute.org. Thanks for listening.